Hi, I'm Kevin Harrington, an original shark in the hit TV show, Shark Tank. I'm also the inventor of the infomercial and an ass on TV. Dove is a special uh, entrepreneur. Uh, he does amazing podcasts, but he's also a speaker and a consultant. Hi, I'm Sal Sylvester. I'm the author of Unite, the four mindset shifts for senior leaders and founder of Coach Metrics. He's a thought leader in the field, fantastic author. He's got an amazing radio show. Hello there, my name is Brett Trapp. I'm a creative consultant living in Atlanta, Georgia. Also the creator of Blue Babies Pink. Uh, this guy has written books, has a successful podcast, uh, and is absolutely changing the game when it comes to leadership and leadership development. Hey guys, Cameron Brown here, founder of The Thriving Collective. I travel the world helping people make a greater impact. Dolph is uh, just an outstanding character, uh, high quality guy, authentic guy, uh, master on leadership. My name is Chris Stoikos, founder of thebeardclub.com. And I'd just like to say that Dove has a very, very unique approach to working with businesses. Hey, this is Derry Apjohn, as well as Davis, aka The Strategy Man. And if I'm going to describe Dove in three words, it's going to be courageous, deep, and conscious. And that's exactly what you need for leadership right now. Hey guys, this is Devon Harris, original member of the Jamaican Bobsled team, three-time Olympian, author, speaker, philanthropist, he is one of the most amazing guys you'll ever meet, an amazing interviewer, but at the same time, an amazing speaker. Hi, I'm Nate Regeer, CEO and co-founding partner of Next Element Consulting, a global leadership training company specializing in conflict communication. You know, the more I get to know Dov Barron, the more I admire his authenticity, his genuine commitment to something that I share deep in my heart, which is this notion of authentic communication. I'm Jared Nichols. I'm a futurist, executive advisor, host of the NSBA podcast, The Road Ahead, and also president of the Jared Nichols Group. Dov is uh, an outstanding thought leader when it comes to leadership and the traits and the qualities of leadership that are going to be necessary to succeed in the 21st century. Hey everybody, Coach Brew here, best-selling author of Stadium Status, taking your business to the big time. If I had to describe Dov in three words, it would be expertise, genuine, and heart-centered leader. I'm John Berga, the president of Flourishing Leadership Institute, where we enable communities and organizations. He has a finger on the pulse of what the future is asking for from leaders. Hey, this is Jordan Harbinger of the Art of Charm podcast. Dov Barron is a great host with insightful perspective. He understands what makes people tick, and he can get to the heart of the matter in an entertaining and educational and informational way. Hi, I'm Joshua Miller, and I am the author of the new book, I Call Bullshit, Live Your Life, Not Somebody Else's. Dov Barron, to me, when you talk about authentic leadership and cutting through the bullshit, there's nobody I would trust to go to than Dov Barron. Hello there, I'm Mike Glauser. I've been studying entrepreneurial leadership for more than 20 years. He really knows how to teach authentic leadership and that's one of the most important things today in leading organizations. Hi there, my name is Rick Barker. I am the founder of the Music Industry Blueprint. I help people navigate the music business. He had made me aware of some things that were quite visible, but were still hidden. I'm Tom Bilyeu, co-founder of Quest Nutrition and Impact Theory. Dov is absolutely amazing. I really enjoyed my time. A, he knows the guests before they come on, which is absolutely critical. But B, this guy, most importantly, has intensity, well thought out ideas, often counterintuitive, which is what 
makes him great. Hi, I'm Tim Sanders, author of the book Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. His perspective is laser sharp about the things that matter. Have you ever been curious about what it would be like to be so high you could actually look down on the sky? Some of us are old enough to remember being kids and wherever we were in the world watching the moon landing. It was the most exciting thing ever. Well, as we record this in 2019, there's a new space race, only this time it's to Mars. And if you've been curious about that, or for that matter, anything that seems to be science fiction that is becoming science fact, I don't know, like robot surgeons uh, reattaching limbs, then you are going to love this episode. So stay tuned because we are going to unleash your curiosity. My name is Doug Barron, I'm your host, and you can find out more about me and how to hire me as your speaker of strategies for your organization by going to fullmontyleadership.com or fullmontyleadership.com speaking or consulting. Okay, my guest on this episode is Dr. Scott Parazinski. Wow, okay, <laughs> try that again. Dr. Scott Parazinski. He is the renowned explorer and inventor, a physician and US Hall of Fame astronaut turned tech CEO. He leads Fluidity Technologies, a startup focused on revolutionizing and dramatically simplifying human machine interfaces. Wait for that. For everything from drone flights to surgical robots. In May 29, uh, 2009, he became the first and only astronaut to stand on top of the world, on top of Everest. He's also the author of The Sky Below. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Dr. Scott Parazinski. <laughs> wow, that is the best introduction I've ever had. Thank you, Doug. Great to be with you. It's good to have you here, man. Thank you so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. Now, let's start with my, my, my favorite opening question, which is what are you most curious about right now? My, my goodness, you know, the, the, uh, it is such an exciting time to be alive. The, uh, the advances in, um, in AI, of course, robotics, um, and in medicine in particular, the, the ability for us to really understand uh, your unique uh, situation, your unique health as well as disease state, and ultimately to be able to cater treatment directly to you as opposed to just putting on uh, a Band-Aid or something that's generically uh, um, may have a chance to, to treat your, your condition. So uh, I'm really excited about the potential of the future, but there are many obstacles that we have to climb uh, to get, get across as well. And um, and so that, that actually is an exciting opportunity for innovators like myself to you know, make it possible for us to climb those mountains. So each, when, you, when you talk about that, and specifically in the context of illness and disease, are you talking about um, spe specific gene mapping of an individual and, and treating from that level, or are you talking about someone else altogether? Even beyond, you know, it's the, it, uh, we, ha we have so much complexity in our, uh, beyond our DNA, it's the, not to get too deep into it, but the epigenetics, the expression of proteins, our microbiome, our gut, um, even our, our psyche, how, how uh, our mind affects uh, 
the manifestation of disease. It's such a complex interplay of, of all these different uh, layers of, of our being. And, and we're just starting to understand um, how we can manipulate those things and treat uniquely your condition the very best way. One of our biggest challenges actually is uh, um, one of our safeguards, the, the FDA of course is designed to protect us from you know, poisoning our bodies or, or not um, delivering safe medicine, but perhaps we're being too cautious, especially mm -hmm. in uh, very, very serious diseases. Could we, could we relax some of those safeguards if we have the, the unique knowledge and the ability to adjust um, uh, our treatments appropriately? Yeah, I mean, a lot of that is determined, of course, uh, because we live in a litigious um, situation and where, where, you know, everybody's terrified of being sued. But, you right. know, I certainly agree with you. I mean, we understand this is, by the way, you're actually in my, my playground, too, because this is, this is part of how the person who introduced us uh, is part of our connection, too, because I've been studying these things for about 40 years. Mm -hmm. And that is how the how the mind and the body are deeply connected. The microbiome of the stomach, how it impacts, um, you know, the three brains: the brain in the heart, the neurons in the heart, the neurons in the gut, the neurons in the brain, and the interaction between those. And and we don't right pay enough attention to that. We've always looked at medicine as being, you know, well, your body's sick; it must be your body. Well, you know, your mind's sick; it must be your mind. Well, you know, if your gut is off. You can't think straight <laughs> and, and we know we've got you know people responding and reacting to all kinds of things now all these things are so as you said you know they're so intertwined and it is a it's a fascinating time to because of the the, the knowledge of that and of course you know uh, even in the early 70s uh, I, I started studying in the 80s which was epigenetics because we, we, you know, even in the in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s, people were like, well, it's all in your genes. And we're like, not really. Epigenetics means that the gene is determined by its environment, right? So, yep, yep, yep. And so the, the genes are actually responding in context of the environment. If we take the nucleus of the gene out, it doesn't die. And the nucleus of the cell out, it doesn't die. Well, if you take your brain out, you will. So, but if you remove the membrane, which is determines the environment, the gene, the cell dies. So it's it's a fascinating area. Are you and your company directly involved in that side? Uh, not not directly at this at this time. And in fact, my company, Fluidity Technologies, is is all about um, you know converting our human intent into movement through uh, three dimensional space. We we call it six degrees of freedom space. Um, so think of the tip of a surgical instrument inside a uh, the human body controlled by a robot. Mm -hmm. the, point, the point of reference, it's not only the XYZ physical location, but it's the pitch, yaw, and roll of it. How do we, can, how do we transfer the, the surgeon's intent of moving that tip of a catheter or a laparoscope or a surgical instrument with great precision, giving him or her the tactile feedback to, to know what they're doing, uh, when they're inputting a command and when they're not, um, and making it a, a less uh, a complex environment than our current uh, control methods for surgical robotics, which I'm not sure if you've seen them, but they're, they're impressive, but uh, they, they require an enormous amount of training and, um, and proficiency. If you aren't doing these cases all the time, the outcomes are not good. Uh, they take, the cases take longer, 
and um, the outcomes uh, typically are, are not as as successful as an open procedure. So the, the Fluidity Technologies currently is actually focused on uh, a drone flight controller that uh, makes uh, precise flight uh, much more intuitive, easier uh, to learn, and, uh, and also a lot more fun. It, it's instead of flying with two thumbsticks uh, like a, an Xbox game, uh, which has actually been in existence since the 1930s when uh, we first started flying radio-controlled aircraft. Wow. We've had innovation in over eight decades in, in flight control in that regard. So we've taken it and put it into a, a very fancy uh, joystick that we call the FT Aviator. Mm. It allows us to very precisely move uh, the, the drone through the air column uh, with, uh, with intuitive ease and allows the pilot to reduce his or her cognitive workload so that you can actually get the immersive imagery that you're out there to capture in the first place. So that's what we're up to. We, we want to take our, our core technology and, all, and one day reinvent uh, computer gaming, of course, computer-aided design, uh, helicopter flight, but ultimately to be able to operate, uh, teleoperate a, a surgical robot, uh, say here in Phoenix, uh, and support um, a patient in sub-Saharan Africa or rural Nepal. And it, it sounds like science fiction, but it, it, it really could happen in the not-too-distant future. How far out do you think we are from that? I think uh, with proper funding, we, we could be there uh, within uh, three to five years. Wow. Because that's, I mean, you know, that's the thing, right? Somebody is, you know, in, a re in really bad shape in the middle of nowhere. And having that kind of technology that says this surgeon who is in Phoenix can, can take care of that. Or this surgeon in London can take care of that by right. being in, a, in an environment that that facilitates that but let, let's go into that just because you brought it up let's go into that sort of sci-fi level of it the 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 movement of i mean i know there's a lot of exploration into the the transference of consciousness and what i mean by that is um for you know why has to be put on my coconut and for me to send my my messages to you know rather than a joystick of any kind but to actually be able to maneuver with eye movement and those kinds of things. Is that, is that on the horizon or is that still sci-fi for you? Not sci-fi at all. And in fact, uh, there's a wonderful company uh, called Rex Bionics uh, that uh, our, our mutual friend, uh, Jonathan Sackier knows a lot about as well. And uh, there's a, uh, a researcher at the University of Houston uh, who is doing amazing things with EEG uh, to enable this exoskeleton to uh, allow paraplegics and even quadriplegic patients to ambulate, to stand up and move. And it's a very slow moving exoskeleton support. But imagine just to be able to think about something, I, I want to get up and the, the robot responds and it, and it pushes uh, the person up, I wanna walk to the door. And imagine the freedom that that gives to that patient. And, um, and so, I mean, the, the, the signal noise ratio and that, you know, get, getting all these electronic signals from the scalp is, I mean, it's, it's overwhelmingly complex. And it, I think we're a long way away from um, getting the, the subtleties of, of those, sig those signatures uh, to control uh, certain aspects of our lives. But certainly um, neural prostheses and things, uh, you know, people are, are talking about them. And I, I think they could happen in... Yeah, in our it, lifetime. it's kind of like, you know, I mean, I think that all these things are always on that knife's edge 
because on one side of it is this amazing, I mean, I, I can clearly remember, because uh, I'm old, uh, I can clearly remember uh, watching a documentary in the 70s about um, G, um, GMO foods and thinking, my God, this is going to be amazing. We're going to be able to feed the starving. We're going to be able to grow fruit in the desert. You know, I mean, it was, it was amazing. But then, you know, GMO foods became a bit tricky and, and people are still starving in the world while the richest countries in the world are getting richer and, and people are getting heavier. So right. it didn't quite work out the way we planned it and it didn't work out so well for, for the, exactly what we're talking about, the, the, the gut, right? So there were a lot of problems with it. Um, and it's the same with this, this technology, this idea that, that, you know, there's neuro implants, the neuroprosthesis that allow for a spine to work again. I mean, it's exciting, it's wonderful, but there's also that side of it that maybe some paranoia and maybe some justifiable paranoia, which is this sense of being chipped and controlled. What's your yeah, it, the, 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 the black, uh, black mirror uh, uh, phenomenon. I'm not sure if, yeah. you, if you've seen the series, very. but you know, very, very, very thought provoking series. Um, yeah, all these uh, far reaching, um, you know, ambitions that we have uh, always take longer, they cost more, and then there are unforeseen uh, sequelae from them. Um, but it, it's, it's great that we, we have the opportunity to, to pursue them. And you know, I, I look to the, uh, the space program now, which is, you know, had been a governmental pursuit for, for decades. Now we have uh, private industry, you know, companies like SpaceX, Origin, uh, Virgin Galactic, and many others that are, that are taking the bull by the horns and they're, they're going to be taking thousands and thousands of people in the not too distant future up into space. And uh, you know, so they're opening up this new market with big, big bold visions. And, uh, and so I, you know, th that's one exciting realm of technology that's happening. You know, we have CRISPR technology and, uh, and so much more understanding of the microbiome as we've already been talking about. People are working on that as well. And you know, we don't know what, the disco what discoveries they'll make that will allow us to commercialize it and scale it. But um, I have to, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an optimist by, by nature and I have to think that uh, cooler heads and, uh, will prevail and, and these technologies will be used for good. Yeah, it's, it's like you said, it's very exciting times. You, you just brought up something actually that I was gonna talk about a little bit later on, but, it, but it's, you know, it's very cool. Um, you know, when we were kids, space was NASA. You know, there was the USSR yeah. doing stuff, but it was NASA were doing it. Um, and being an astronaut, being traveling to space, all that has changed. It, it's been privatized, as you said. You know, um, now NASA has announced that it will be uh, joining forces with Elon Musk's SpaceX uh, to conquer Mars and the Moon. Jeff Bezos and the Google boys are talking about asteroid mining. Right. What's your thoughts on all that? Because that's going to be very different than when you entered into the astronaut program, which was very patriotic and very American, you know, even for, for somebody like me who was back in the UK as a kid, looking at it, you know, it was like, for me, that was the personification of America was, was, was NASA and the moon landing. That and JFK, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, you know, change is good. I mean, that, that's how we how we move forward. I'm really excited about it, actually. I mean, um, yeah, the the space program of today is is uh, 
almost unrecognizable from what it was when you and I were kids. And I was yeah. seven years old when, when Neil and Buzz walked on the moon. And, you know, I, I was, you know, spellbound uh, uh, during that uh, amazing time. And yeah, the, the space program and what we anticipate doing in the future is, is quite different now too. But um, I'm really excited about it. I, I, I sort of consider this era as the, the barnstorming era of commercial human spaceflight. Beginning of the last century, it was the barnstorming era of, you know, there's a pilot, he'd fly into town in his, uh, you know, bi-wing uh, and take you for a ride for a nickel. Uh, you know, now it's, you know, if you, you want to take a ride in space, it's $250,000 to Sir Richard Branson. Uh, so it's a little bit more expensive. But, <laughs> but it's incredibly exciting. And, uh, and so, you know, I think it's the natural progression of, uh, you know, technology development, the government takes on high risk, uh, high reward uh, types of projects. Now it's of a sufficient ma uh, maturity that there's opportunity now for companies, uh, bold companies, well-financed companies to do things uh, uh, like Elon Musk and, and Jeff Bezos and others can do. What, what, what's your thoughts on, on this seeming to me, at least, this new obsession with going to Mars? Um, because, um, as Elton John said in one of his songs, Mars ain't the kind of place to raise your kids. Right? <laughs> well, well, it, it could be. No, that's the thing. You know, we, we, we would have to, we'd have to spend some, some time we'd and have, effort. We'd to... have to nuke it a couple of times <laughs> to create no, some kind of biosphere. Well, yeah, so to sort of terraform, I think that would probably take about yeah. 10,000 years and you have to melt exactly. the, the, the polar ice and all sorts of things. That, that's a pretty long, long-term strategy. But um, I, I do think that, um, you know, there's always been a fascination since the Apollo era, actually, of, of going to Mars. And in fact, my ambition as a kid was to set the first blueprints down on Mars. When I, I, when I watched uh, uh, Neil uh, walk on the moon, I said, I, I want to be the Neil Armstrong uh, when we we go to, to Mars. And of course, it didn't quite work out that way for my career, and that's, that's all right. But um, I, I do believe that the first Martians have already been born. They're, they're walking the planets. I don't know if they're in kindergarten or if they're a postdoc um, in some you know, graduate school. But uh, I, I believe that um, it's human destiny for us to send explorers to Mars. And it's not that far away, um, especially if we go as an international collaborative as we've done with the International Space Station program. I think we could afford it and there would be incredible rewards for the entire planet. It, as the Apollo program showed, you know, when, when Americans first set foot on the moon, it was a, a global accomplishment. It wasn't an American accomplishment. Of course, we, we, we took uh, uh, a fair amount of credit for it, but it was uh, it, humanity had, had set foot on the moon. And, and I think when we go to Mars, it will actually be uh, crew members from all over the world, resources and scientists uh, participating from all over the world, and it will be an incredible uh, accomplishment. And it won't, I hope, uh, be just to set boot prints and flags on the moon, but it will build a habitat there. We'll, we'll eventually build a colony there. We'll become a two-planet species, which I think is, you know, it, extraordinary. And I, I think uh, even for human survival, um, you know, off into the, uh, the future, I think it's also important for us to, to venture forth uh, beyond well, Earth. Let's, let's go to that for a minute, Scott, because that brings up uh, an ethical, moral question, which is, 
we're going to spend all this money going to Mars. Why don't we spend that money taking care of the decent planet we have, which is already fully inhabitable, rather than rather than taking a crap on it, <laughs> which is what a lot of people are doing a lot of the time. Maybe we could just spend that money he here, and actually, you know, it's kind of like we're going to buy a house in the country, but we'll trash this one first. Well, you know, why not just keep? Why not upgrade this one? Well, it, it it's a, a, a provoking uh, 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 question you have there. Um, absolutely, we we are not being the greatest stewards of our our home planet. In fact, uh, it, it really pains me, as I'm sure it does you, to to know what we're doing to our oceans, our climate. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, let's let's back up for a moment and and talk about why do we invest in science? Why do we invest in technology development? Well, it's to improve the quality of life for all of us here, whether we're on Earth or whether we're on the moon or Mars or places beyond. Anytime that we ask difficult questions, we invest in science and technology, we learn new things that benefit all of our lives here and now. Yeah. And so that's why we have an International Space Station. That's why we have a space program. We spend a very small amount of our uh, U.S. budget on space, less than uh, half a percent uh, you know, you spend more on pizza every year than you, you spend um, on your taxes for the, the space program. And there's, there's so many different rewards that we, we sure. derive from it um, in, in medicine and new materials and technologies, new computer uh, capabilities. And, you know, I, I could go on and on. But um, the return on investment that we make in, in things like this are enormous. And, and uh, there's so many different aspects of our daily lives today that derive from our bold initiative going to the moon. And we don't know what we're going to learn on Mars, but I'm certain that it's going to challenge our technologists, our, our engineers and scientists, and the rewards back to our economy in terms of new jobs, uh, new industries, and even inspiration for young people is, is beyond compare. So that's why I think we, we have to continue to, uh, to make these important investments. Um, and I think the other thing that's really, really important is it bridges people and, uh, and countries. Um, and so I, I think, you know, th times are perhaps a little tenser now with uh, our Russian colleagues, but um, you know, the, the fact that we're able to bring two former adversaries together to, to build yep. a station together is, is really quite extraordinary. It is. I hope we can continue to do that. Yeah, and I mean, that is one of the things, I mean, there was the great space race, because, you know, the, the, the Russian cosmonauts were the first ones to, to circle the planet, and then it was like, okay, we got to go to the moon. But as you, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, ultimately, it was, the, it was something that brought us together rather than forced us apart. Um, and, you know, uh, even the movies understand that, you know, like, you know, you're warring countries, and then suddenly there's an alien invasion, and we're all on the same team. Yeah, it doesn't really matter what color you are. Those guys are coming. We got to do something, you know. And it and it's and it's part of the human phenomena. We are tribal, and we need to understand that. But but we need to be intertribal, not just tribal. And that's the problem. We've become very tribal. But let's go back a bit because I'm always fascinated by this part. Um, I feel like it, I mean, my background is in psychology, you know, as well as the neurosciences and all those kinds of things. Um, and I'm fascinated by the fact that who we are as kids has an impact on what we grow up around has an impact on how we form as adults. And I read that you spent many years um, 
you, you know, in your grade school and high school where you were living in places like Dhaka and Senegal and uh, I think it was Beirut. Um, uh, Tehran Iran, and Athens. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. mm -hmm. Which, I, by the way, I loved Tehran. I was there recently about three years ago. You know, you traveled a lot. Um, were you, you know, obviously traveling a lot, uh, there's wonderful advantages to that. There's also disadvantages to that. You build friendships, but you can't, you know, you're going to be moving off to another country. You've got a foreign language that's going on around you. You're an outsider. So my first question to you in the context of that is, were, were you a freak, a weirdo, a nerd, an odd kid, you know, in the context of your environment? Did you feel uh, like, did you feel well, like you yeah, that, that's a, a great question. Yeah, I, I feel very, really lucky to have had the exposure to all these different cultures as a, as a young person. Um, initially, I really hated it because I was uprooted from a stable environment in suburbia. I lived in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and I guess we left at the end of my sixth grade year um, and uprooted to Dakar, Senegal in West Africa, totally foreign environment. I needed to learn to speak French uh, from scratch uh, and, uh, and make a whole host of new friends. And, uh, you know, and you, you can't imagine the culture shock uh, of coming from American suburbia to going to, uh, to West Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was why you want to go to Mars. <laughs> Senegal felt like Mars from Virginia. <laughs> The contrast is pretty, yeah, pretty stark, pretty, pretty, pretty equivalent there. So, yeah, I mean, I, but, but I had traveled, uh, you know, to, to Europe before and had done a little bit of, uh, you know, um, I, I was always kind of an explorer. I was the, the kid that would uh, um, pick up and, and uh, yeah, pick up the rock, walk, uh, hike, hike over the hill. Um, and yeah, I just love the adventure and of, of exploration. The things that I read about all had to do with exploration as well. So I, I took on um, these different environments where we lived as an opportunity to explore as well. And so I, I just had this incredible wanderlust. And, uh, and so I immersed myself in, in, these, in these cultures where we lived in, in Dakar, Senegal, Beirut, Lebanon, uh, during the Civil War. Actually, we had to evacuate. Uh, wow. In the midst of that, uh, ended up going to high school in Athens, Greece, and um, and then I spent the first half of my senior year in Tehran at the beginning of the Islamic Revolution. We had to evacuate from uh, uh, Tehran in December of '78. Uh, the Shah wow. left in uh, January wow. of '79. So yeah. we were there right in the, the the midst of all this chaos. But you know, for a wide-eyed kid, it was an incredible adventure, and I think it it only solidified my, my passion to become uh, an explorer. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Are you, um, was your dad in, was he, was he in a, like, was he a military guy or something? Is that why you were moving around so much? Uh, he was with the Boeing airplane company and he uh, was doing international marketing. So, uh, you know, we, every couple, three years, we would get a new assignment. And uh, so they, they had a wonderful career living all over the, all over the planet. How long were you in Tehran? Unfortunately, just uh, under six months. Uh, in fact, uh, three days after we got to Tehran, they declared martial law. <laughs> oh, well, so it wasn't, wasn't the best timing. But uh, yeah, just because I wondered if, you know, because uh, one of the things that I, like I said, I was there uh, about three years ago and I came back and wrote a, an important article that I think went, it did very well, went reasonably 
viral where I talked about the myths of Iran, you know, where the American media or the North American or even Western media tells us that Iran is, you know, and it talks about, you know, when you think of Iran, what do you think of? Do you think of deserts? Do you think of people riding camels? And, you know, do you think of people, you know, and, and it's surprising how many people do. And I, you know, described the city and the warmth and magnificence of the people that I met who were the, the most hospitable people I have ever met. And I traveled a lot. They were amazing. They were kind. They were warm. And they understand that their government has propaganda and they don't believe the propaganda. Right? Sure. Where, sure. When we hear Americans and, and North Americans talk about Iran, they believe their, their, their country's propaganda. And it's nothing like that. There, they, I met people all the time who said, Oh, I, we love Americans. We love Canadians. We love Europeans. You know, so it's, it's, it's fascinating that understanding. And I, I just, you know, it's a modern city and a highly right. educated people. And, you know, and I just, I, I, I wanted, the reason I asked you is because I wondered if you had had a chance to see uh, Iran um, under the shower or even before, which was, you know, it was very Western. I mean, women were in miniskirts and, you know. It, it was very progressive. And as you say, a highly educated population, um, and, uh, you know, many, many years of, of strong bonds with uh, America and, the, and, and Western Europe. And so it, it really pains me that, uh, you know, I probably can't go back to Iran at this, at this point in time just because of the, the tensions that exist. But I do know that the people there, uh, at least the ones that I recall, my interactions were very similar to yours. Uh, you know, it's a wonderful culture. Um, um, you know, one of the oldest and most intelligent cultures. It's the birth of uh, birth of uh, really great thinking is right there in that part of the world. A absolutely, and it, it's a very diverse landscape. Um, I, I remember in uh, in Tehran, you're right above uh, the city. There are actually ski slopes. You know, you, you don't realize that the city is at four thousand feet, and there are beautiful mountains uh, right above the city. And I stayed on, I stayed in the brand new hotel, which is on the side of that mountain. Yeah, that's so great. I can yeah. see skiers behind me out of the back of the, of the hotel. And, I, and as I look front, I can see the cityscape with the long towers and just like, wow. And it, and it was snowing and four degrees. And I'm like, yeah, this is not quite the around everybody pictures. No, it's not. <laughs> oh, and by the way, and I was dropped off by a Mercedes. <laughs> you know, not a camel. <laughs> Great food too, really wonderful food. Yeah.